Welcome to Inside Outside Innovation, episode 107. Azim Azar is our guest this week, author of The Exponential View, a weekly newsletter about innovation. He starts off the episode by telling Brian more about his background and how a broad approach can be really helpful for corporate innovation efforts. They finish off the interview by talking about venture capital and the pitfalls and peaks that an organization can experience. IO Innovation is hosted by Brian Ardinger, founder of Next, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that helps innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Find out more and premium content at InsideOutside.io. You know, I've always been a data hound. I've always been a reading hound. And, and I did lots of maths and physics and chemistry at high school. And I studied philosophy and economics and politics at, at university. Uh, so I've always been somebody who's had quite broad interests, sometimes at the expense of specialization. And I had spent seven years building a company uh, in the uh, marketing analytics space, uh, ultimately, that used a lot of machine learning that was acquired at the end of 2014. And that was the first time in my life I had spent seven years just worrying about one really narrow thing. Mm. And I really needed to stretch my legs a little bit. And so after I uh, uh, sold the company uh, at the end of 2014, I just started to compile some links together uh, and send it to a bunch of friends. Now, I had been a blogger for a really, really long time. So the very first live blog that I ran was in 1996, before the term had been coined yes. by the, the great Nebraskan Evan Williams, uh, and uh, using a piece of software called uh, Userland Frontier. Uh, I was then one of the first users of the blogger product, which was called Pyra at the time as a project management tool back in 2000. So I had thought quite a lot, lot about this sort of medium in this format. And when I, when I was kind of free of running the company, I started this newsletter and started to share some links to about 20 friends. And I think the distinct spin that I, I brought to it was um, for, for technologists to be able to see their technology in the context of culture and society and business, uh, and for business people and people who are not technologists to start to put their hands around what are these technologies really. And, and I'm, I feel that I'm well equipped to do that because, uh, you know, I've studied these the sort of social sciences uh, and I've worked as a regulator and, and, and so on. But at the same time, uh, you know, I have been a in, in the tech industry for a long time. I have written code, most of it very bad. Um, I've invested in lots of about 30 tech companies, some in the AI domain. Uh, so I feel like I have a sufficient grounding in both camps uh, to bring the two together. And I think that's that that cocktail that has worked quite well for readers like yourself and, you know, the 30,000 others. Yeah, and I agree, and that's why, uh, quite frankly, you know, I work with a lot of corporations in that uh, in this innovation space, and uh, I constantly trying to get them to think broader about uh, what they're doing. You know, a lot of times we think uh, corporate innovators, I think they oftentimes stumble or fall when they're looking at their particular industry and what's going to disrupt their particular industry, but they're not thinking about other technologies and other industries that actually could be tangential or or helpful for them. Um, and, and so that broad approach, I think, really helps uh, kind of. Uh, 
make sense of this exponential uh, disruption that's actually happening out there in the market? You've said two two really interesting things there. Let's just pick up on both of them. I mean, so, so one is that uh, I think for corporate innovators, industry boundaries are blurring, uh, and so so this this sectoral view that you get when you you know look at the the stock uh, stock market prices in, in the newspaper and, and and so on doesn't necessarily reflect the way in which we are going to organize the world in the future. Uh, is is Uber or Lime Bike? Should that sit in the same industrial category as General Motors? It, it's not really clear. So I think you do get those those boundaries blurred. But I think the second point is that, you know, technology is is now the the interface to all the resources that we access in the world. And lots of the things that we, we do with technology and lots of the impact of the kind of fundamentals of, of modern sort of exponential IT puts pressure on the systems of governance, um, the systems of industrial organization and systems of education that we have been using relatively successfully for the last 200 years. And so I think it, it, it becomes important, especially if you're a leader in a, in a corporate or you're an investor, for you to understand the context within which you are, you are doing this. You're not investing in yet another uh, poke bowl restaurant right uh it's not going to change the fabric of society you know fundamentally you are looking at things that will change the way we live our lives change the way our cities are run change the way we have to educate ourselves we organize ourselves you know fundamentally i think it's a pretty much of a wholesale rewrite of the full stack of society that we will undergo over the next 20 years and that, that's actually a nice segue to this concept of, uh, you know, technology. And we think about it a lot of times um, based on these tech centers, whether it's, you know, uh, Silicon Valley or, or New York or even London and that. But what are you seeing for when it comes to innovation outside the valley and, and, and how innovation is affecting uh, places that you don't typically think of as innovative? Well, it's it's definitely uh, becoming more distributed. Uh, Silicon Valley was for a long time, and certainly when I covered it, uh, the only game in town, really. There were little spots in, in Boston and, and in Israel. But now you really do have vibrant ecosystems uh, emerging in other cities in the US and right across Europe, um, you know, Berlin, Stockholm, Paris and London being the big four. And of course, we, we absolutely must not forget China, uh, and the fact that China is producing unicorns um, at a rate of knots and that the world's largest uh, financial fintech startup uh, is a Chinese company, it's, it's uh, and financial. So the, 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 the center of gravity has really shifted. And, and it was true to say five or 10 years ago that that may be true, but all the big exits happen out of Silicon Valley. And, and the biggest you could point to in Europe would have been something like SAP in the, in the software space. Uh, but now that's, that's not strictly true. I mean, the disproportionate number still happen in Silicon Valley, but a lot of very large exits and companies are being built out of China. Uh, and in, in Europe, we're starting to see uh, the Decacorn, right? The unicorn's right. worth a billion dollars, the Decacorn's worth more than 10, Spotify valued at $30 billion. Uh, and there's a really interesting pipeline of companies coming through. Uh, but, but I think that the things that make these ecosystems succeed is that they are, they are systems level objects, uh, entities, right? Where you have capital and universities and talent and talent services 
um, and the kind of things that make it easier for founders and Silicon Valley is really good for that. It's a little bit harder in, in, in London or Paris and, 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 and so on. And it takes time to, for those things to build. So, so Silicon Valley still holds a lead, but I would say that the picture is, is very, very different. And I think you start to see different classes of businesses being produced uh, in these other, uh, in these other centers. And I think you're going to start seeing that more as well from the standpoint of like you look at someplace like the Midwest where agriculture or, uh, you know, kind of there's core industries, whether it's transportation, uh, insurance, et cetera, that are in the, um, these spaces. And these industries have not evolved as fast as technology, and, and but they're at that spot where they have to uh, take a look at that. And but all those folks that are working in these particular industries have these domain expertise that uh uh, should give them a leg up uh, to be able to help navigate that if they can, if they're willing to take a look and, and be more innovative and, and think differently about their business models and the, and the way they're actually growing their business. Yeah, you know that's such an interesting point uh, that, you, that you've made again, uh, Brian. Because if you if you think about the the huge uh, Silicon Valley successes, there were these global consumer consumer products, uh, right. Facebook and, and and Twitter and so on and Google, uh, and they were global enterprise platforms. And I think if you're going to build a global consumer product, uh, like a sort of Facebook competitor, Silicon Valley is probably a better place to do it than, than any, any of the other places. But there are lots of companies that are going to create incredible value that need to have a closer reg, uh, connection to the space in which they are operating. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm a venture partner at a fund called uh, Kindred in, in, out in London, which is an early stage fund. And one of our companies is uh, called uh, 5.ai. And it's an autonomous vehicle company. But the, the founder, Stan, has identified that y- y- the needs of European cities, which are not like the, grid, the, the endless grids of Scottsdale or Phoenix, are, are, are very different. So the, the physical architecture is different. The, the geography of the space is different. But, but so are the norms of driving around the Arc de Triomphe compared to yielding on a big American road. Uh, and, and so... His argument is that you're going to need safe urban autonomy in the context of a medieval European city is very different to solving that problem for Houston. Uh, and so, you're, you, you know, you can only really do that from Europe. There's, there's not much value in, in building a you know, company in, in the Bay Area to, to, to go off and do that. Um, and, and so as we start to really in, uh, have, a, have another 20 years of, of quite incredible change, a lot of that is going to end up being much, much more localized. And I think there's a second dimension to this, which is that that governments are going to look at what do we need locally because societal goods, public space goods, um, are increasingly moving into the digital sphere where they are owned um, and by, by private entities. And if all of those private entities are based in you know the Bay Area. Well, they're not because Amazon, of course, is up in uh, up in Washington State. But if they're all based over there, then you're sort of losing control of some dimension of your public space. So I would expect there to be some tension and some shifts uh, over the next few years uh, in that area as well, which, in a sense, will favour the locality. Absolutely. So I want to uh, switch gears slightly. You wrote a piece recently uh, called The Resurgence of Corporate VC. And a lot of our audience obviously is, is in that particular space, whether, uh, you know, uh, inside innovation kind of folks that are either investing in startups or, or trying to 
be and act and um, move more like startups inside their mm-hmm. uh, organization. So let's talk a little bit about this investment space and specifically how corporations are kind of um, taking a stab and becoming more like a traditional venture capital f- firms out there. Yeah, well, uh, you know, corporate venture is this is this sort of odd, odd beast. It has been horribly cyclical historically. So what happens is when times are good, company sets up a corporate venture arm, rolls in a couple of its execs to, to run it. The moment times get bad or you get your first uh, write-off, everyone panics and shuts it down. <laughs> shuts it down, And then you get a bad reputation, right? You're not patient capital. You're not going to be there when it's difficult, uh, when times get going gets tough. And, and at the same time, uh, venture capital is, is actually a networks and relationships business. And you know, corporate execs tend not to have the right relationships to help startups. So that has been the historical story with a couple of standout exceptions, sort of Intel, you know, putting yeah, billions of dollars at work in, into, uh, into startups. Um, wh- what has happened in the last few years is that about 20% of all venture deals now have uh, a corporate venture capitalist involved. Um, they represent about a third of all uh, venture dollars. And what's interesting is that the CVC, corporate venture capital, investments in 2017 were bigger than the entire VC industry of 2013. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons why is that, well, there are, there are a few and I'll run through them. So one is that many companies are spitting out cash and don't really know what to, what to do with it. And there's a lot of money kicking around and there are just no real yields. The second is that the, the companies have observed enough businesses be disruptive and have recognized that their pure internal organic efforts don't necessarily attract the right talent or have they, they have the wrong risk profile for the finance director to, to back. Uh, and, and if anyone's back to startup business plan, you know, the volatility and uncertainty around where that thing actually ends is tough often for angel investors to deal with, let alone a corporation that has to report, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps to its shareholders very regularly. And, and so, so I think, that combined with a maturation in, in the way corporates think about their investment. So, so it, you know, venture capital is a service business where you are serving the entrepreneur and corporate corporations have traditionally walked into these things saying, Hey, we are X, we are Acme Megacorp of Nebraska. You're lucky to be talking to us, Mr. Founder. Right. Uh, and that led to all sorts of problems and adverse selection and so on. And I think corporates are now, much clearer about the services that they're going to provide the founder when they're going to step away and when they're not going to be annoying. And so the confluence of all of these things, I think, creates uh, has created the increased uh, attention both by founders towards corporates as, as investors and by corporations opening up their balance sheets a little bit. But I still really encourage as a general rule, and it varies a lot from company to company, that if you're going to do corporate VC, um, you need to start thinking about your model from the perspective of what does a real VC look like rather than how do I make this fit into my existing planning and investment uh, cycle. And you almost have these two different types of uh, investing from that corporate side. You have the kind of investing for return. Uh, and in that case, they may be better off just investing in other funds um, versus the strategic kind of uh, investment bets that they're p- placing out there right now. Am I allowed to disagree with you on yeah. that one? <laughs> okay, so let me disagree. So, so I think um, I think it's this this idea of the strategic versus financial 
dichotomy is really a, a, a false dichotomy and it comes out of a control culture that has been instilled in large corporations because of the combination of principal agent problem and sort of Fordist style management. Um, and, and there are cases where corporate venture arms have gone off and done crazy things. Uh, they're, they're few and far between. You, you're far better off in many cases, especially if you're thinking about industry blurring boundaries, giving the managers of the corporate venture capital much more freedom to pursue financial returns. Because if you don't, you get into that adverse selection that you, you, you back the fifth biggest social network, which is who knows, or the seventh biggest ride sharing business, which is who knows, rather than the best one. Uh, and, and, you know, you may have less strategic risk because you've said to them, you've got to be strategically motivated, but in theory, but in practice, you end up with a portfolio full of dogs, uh, which, which go nowhere and don't, don't help your organization. So, so I, I actually don't I think you have to set frame it as a strategy in the same way that many venture funds have a, an agreement with their limited partners about where they're going to invest and what the mandate is but you need to give them much more room to maneuver. Now, there are times when that, is, that isn't the right, right approach. So when you, you are thinking, um, look, I, I, strong, I strongly understand that in my business, I need to build up my capability in this particular area. Mm-hmm. And you've got a very, very clear understanding of what, what that might, might be. Um, then you might be much, much more directed about, what is the strategy? In other words, you, you give a narrower investment mandate to your investment managers. Um, but, but I think once you've given that mandate, it's all about the breadth and the width of the mandate. So I had a really interesting conversation with, um, uh, with, with a corporate VC, and they had identified that um, food delivery was going to be really important for them. And so a key part of their strategy was, let's find food delivery companies. But within that, you're just trying to find the very, very best. Um, right. and, and, and I think if you're going to, what you have to do if you're going to get into kind of corporate VC is you're going to have to take a little bit more risk on, you're going to have to take a portfolio approach because the more you try to be certain about the bets that you make, the less like, the less VC you're actually doing, right? <laughs> you know, why, there's no point turning up to that particular game of tennis with a set of golf clubs, right? If you want a slow paced game like golf, play golf. <laughs> That's the end of another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. Thanks for listening. We have a slew of great guests lined up for you throughout the next month, so be sure to keep coming back for insights and advice on how to transform your organization and the world. Until next time, go out and innovate.